The views and opinions of the guests of Veterans Archives do not reflect the views and opinions of Veterans Archives, its subsidiaries, or its partners. Hello and welcome to Veterans Archives. This is a podcast where you can learn about our military history in the words and voices of the men and women who lived and created it. I'm your host, Bill Krieger, and let's listen to our next story. Today is October 13th, 2023, and we are with Master Sergeant Lon Richardson. How are you doing today, Lon? I'm doing well. Good, uh, good afternoon. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about Lon's uh, service and experiences. Sound good to you? Sounds good. Okay. So what, what year and where were you born? I was born in uh, 1979. May 17th. Okay, and where, where were you born at? Uh, Farmington Hills, which is uh, southeast Michigan. Do you remember what hospital? Botsford Hospital. Botsford? Botsford. Where was that at? Farmington Hills. Where at in Farmington Hills? I have no idea, because we didn't stay there very long. Okay. I was, I was born there, and then ended up in uh, Port Huron, Michigan, where I spent most of my, like, you know, growing up. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, when you were born... Um, what what did your what did your parents do? <clears throat> mm. <laughs> dad, for a living. Yeah, yeah. My dad uh, had a blue collar job uh, as a garbage man. My mom was a stay at home mom. Uh, it, it was uh, the late seventies. Uh, back then, it was pretty normal to have only one car mm-hmm. as a family. So um, she stayed at home, reared my sister and I, and then uh, dad went to work uh, at the garbage truck. Picking up garbage. It was actually a well-paying, you know, blue-collar job. Yeah. Um, then he uh, ended up at Detroit Edison and, and spent a career there as a dispatcher. Okay. And were you when you were living in Port Huron, where were you living at Port Huron? Uh, Lytle Road would be on the north end, north end of Port Huron. And then uh, parents split up when I was 10. And then my mom moved us just about 10 miles north of Port Huron on the Lake Huron coastline, which just worked out really well. It was real low income, but uh, she got a smoking deal on a place, and we had uh, we were right on Lake Huron. Like, oh, like nice. I, you know, I was on the east side of the road, so I, about 100 yards away. You know, I have good memories of, like, leaving the window open at night and hearing the waves uh, crest in, you know, soothe me to bed. It was pretty cool for a divorce situation to have moved to Lexington and been on the lakeshore low income yeah so so i know you to be a fisherman yeah so is that where you did you start fishing that sparked it off my mom remarried uh, my stepfather who i affectionately call my dad as well as my real biological father and uh, he was big into fishing and taught me everything you know that i know today pretty much about it um, and today i currently enjoy the heck out of out of fishing i fish tournaments salmon walleye uh, trout and we're where do you go for salmon? I go all over the east side because that's where I'm from. People argue that the west side has bigger salmon, and, and they do. But uh, I'm familiar, and I have high school friends from Croswell Lexington High School where I graduated, and the, it's like a it's like a reunion. We, and we have a boat team, and so we go out of uh, Lexington Harbor, Port Huron, Port Sanilac, Harbor Beach, running that whole coastline. Um, but just in the thumb, so we don't move on to like Tawas or any of those areas. And now I learned how to fish the west sides of in Traverse City, and uh, man, is it fun to catch a twenty-five to thirty-pound king salmon on the back of your pool! <laughs> like it's a rush. It's definitely a passion. Right on. Um, so th- as you were growing up, yeah, did you have any siblings? Yep, I have a sister named Margaret. She's a year and a half uh, younger than me. Um, and then later on, after my parents, um, divorced, my stepfather, Chester, and my mother, Jean, um, had a baby, my brother, half-brother, technically, right? His name is, uh, James. And, uh, well, I'd say he's about, like, 10 to 12 years younger than I am, and I'm 44 right now. So. Okay. So are you, are you close with both your brother and your Yeah, sister? my sister, and I have, uh, two step- Brother, a stepbrother and a stepsister, and we're all really, really tight knit. You know, more than just holidays, we, we enjoy drinking beer, watching football. Oh yeah, you know, and um, some you know other stuff. 
Yeah. We're tight knit. That's good. Yeah. Um, so growing up, were you guys competitive? Did you play any sports or anything like that? Yeah. Um, I was a late bloomer, so it started out being competitive with my sister, who was always bigger than me, but a year and a half younger and a female. Um, like when I say late, I mean really late. I was just a, a skinny guy, about 120 pounds, and we'd fight over the bathroom. She'd knock me out a couple times, you know. <laughs> uh, we'd race to the mailbox to get the mail. She, she was fast, so she ended up in cross country and track and, and as well as I did. Um, so we were always at the same meets and stuff together, you know, and uh, talking smack back and forth. If she placed a certain place, I would try and place in the mail division better than her. And um, the, the competitive nature with with all my siblings has been fun. You know, now it continues as we're older. Who can make more money? You know, yeah. who can work less and make more? Working less is a very good goal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I want the income, but now it's like, all right, the income's there. Let's see if we can narrow this down to twenty five hours a week with the, that income level. <laughs> so, so you're pretty competitive growing up. Now, did you have anybody in your in your family that that served in the military? Kind of inspired you to. It it didn't inspire me because I wasn't real familiar with it, but my uh, grandfather, um, Donald Richardson, served in the Navy during World War II and was on a ship, and uh, he's got some recognition for taking down a submarine that he was part right. of the ship crew um, that made the history books. It was a big deal, but like I don't know the details of it, and he never really talked about it a whole lot. Um I just knew that he did serve. So once I decided to serve, then I connected, you know, that like, hey, cool. It's kind of a Richardson legacy, but I never even, I mean, that wasn't a driving force for my reason to, to join. Um, he's the only one, though. Um, a lot of my family is Seventh-day Adventist, and they, they tend to be, I wouldn't say like negative towards the military, but a bit, a bit pacifist. Um, so my decision to join was like, it was critiqued pretty heavily. And I think that that's probably a reason that a lot of my relatives didn't serve. So what what triggered you to to look into the military? I paid attention during history. My upbringing taught me that you know hard work ethic was, pr- was probably the chief quality that got respect from my my stepfather. And uh, being I don't know how would I put it. Uh, work ethic and then i paid attention in history i was a, I was a, a good student um until my junior senior year and then i started to let my gpa slide a little bit i was in all college prep classes and stuff like advanced crap and uh during history class i i felt like hey i'm enjoying all these freedoms i understood that and i'm a contributor i'm a helper and i have a hard work ethic and it felt weird to enjoy all those things and not be able-bodied to do something about it that was uh what sparked it. And then I took a trip on a leadership conference. I was selected for by uh, my educators in high school to attend a youth leadership camp in Washington, Mm -hmm. DC. And I had a special moment where I was sitting there overlooking. What is the tall Memorial? It's narrow cylindrical. And it's got a point on the top. Is that Washington Memorial? Maybe that one. There's like some water by it. And I was sitting on some steps in front of a monument and all the planes and stuff were coming over and, uh, man, it's like it was a moment where I knew I wanted to serve in some capacity. And uh, next thing you know, I was having weird conversations with my parents. I think I want to join. And, um, and what was the kind of, like, how did that go? <laughs> well, nobody had served. My mother was the type of person that uh, wouldn't allow me to have, like, play guns or cap guns. used to be a thing. It had a little powder yeah. in it. When you shoot it, go pop. Yeah. Sort of like a firework. I, I wasn't allowed to have any of that it had stuff. Like the reel in it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You remember, sure, right? And uh, so I'd fashion weapons out of sticks, and I like to say to my mom that it sort of all backfired on her, her preventing me playing army. And it made then, you want to do it more. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. So, so that's. I mean, that's how the decisions went, and uh, eventually, I gained her support. I, my reasoning for joining was uh, strictly service and contribution. Um, I chose the National Guard because, I, like I said earlier, I was a pretty good student, and I desired to go to college. Um, so I had no idea what the National Guard was. I thought it was part-time and would pay for college, and my folks' income level, that seemed to make sense. 
um, and I joined up. So where, so where did you go to? You're in Port Huron area. Mm-hmm. Where did you go to see a recruiter? Uh, your junior year for most high schools in Michigan during that time period, uh, 1996, 97, they would hold college nights. Um, and like all the universities across the state, some from out of state would, would come in and set up. And it'd be an evening event inside the gymnasium. You bring your parents and you walk around and you find out what each, each one has to offer, what their programs are, you know, what works for you. And they also um, have military recruiters there. And so I, I got to talking to all of them. I liked the, the uniform in the Marines. That almost drew me in. But when I met the National Guard recruiter, um, that, that was a fit. And that's, that's how it all started. Do you remember who it was? Yeah. Yep. Command Sergeant Major David Marshall, um, who I would later on end up working with um, full time, which is kind of fun because he, only, he, he sucked as a recruiter. <laughs> and he'll self-admit it. We put like one or two people in, and it's not, he's awesome. Like he made it to Command Sergeant Major at a lot of things, but at recruiting, it wasn't his forte. So jokingly, like 15 years later when we started working together in the recruiting battalion, um, the running joke was, hey, you did only one enlistment, but it was the finest one, and you've replaced yourself, so you're free to go. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. So so he, so he, you meet Sergeant Major Marshall, mm-hmm. and then what did he talk about with you that? It's light profanity, but he said, we blow shit up on the weekends and we'll pay for your college. And it was like someone had set a hook in my mouth like I was a fish. <laughs> that that got me. And then the draw to the, the college benefits and stuff, those are just icing on the cake. Yeah. Um, our discussion was kind of short. Like I said, he wasn't the best recruiter. So he just said, hey, we've got a unit in Port Huron. You go there. And that was the end of it. I didn't know there was about 110 different job opportunities available. And guess what that one was? Infantry. So not only am I talking to my parents about joining the service, but now I've selected the most dangerous military occupational specialty that exists. Unknowingly, because I just knew National Guard was in Port Huron, which would make for an easy commute. Yeah. Yeah. That one week in a month. Yeah. Yeah. So so you joined Port Huron Mm -hmm. um, as an 11 Bravo. Mm-hmm. Which was the one two five or one two six infantry? I think it was Alpha Company, and then uh, trucked along like that, and then I became field artillery, which is how I ended up making your acquaintance, Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a field artillery, first of the hundred and nineteenth um, out of Port Huron, and moved across the battalion, and was in Charlie Company one nineteenth as well in Albion, Michigan. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so, so you so you meet Sergeant Major Marshall. How how long bef- after you meet him? Like, what what year is this? And okay. are you a junior in high school, senior in high school? I joined in late October as a high school senior. Yep, senior in nineteen ninety six. Um, and from the time that I met him at that career fair, it was probably a month. Where I got my paperwork together, met with him. He came to the house, met with the parents. Um, roughly, that's the timeline. So, so do you you finish your high school and you ship to basic training? And do you remember the date you shipped to basic training? Yeah. Are you doing <laughs> drill weekends up until this? You are, yeah. Um, so, as soon as you join in the National Guard, you start attending drill weekends and stuff, and they start kind of just showing you the ropes. Pleasant to you, you know. They knew you don't know squat, and they get you prepared for for basic training. So as soon as I graduated my senior year, um, which you graduate eh, like May fifteenth of nineteen ninety seven, it was like a week later I was off to basic training. I did what's called a split option, it's because I had already been accepted into Grand Valley State University. So I I left. For basic, I came back, and three days later, it was freshman orientation at Grand Valley State University. And uh, I still owed a requirement to attend my advanced individual training, which gives you your actual military occupational specialty of 11 Bravo Infantry. 
Um, and so I was just screwing off, having fun as a college student living on campus in Allendale, Michigan, which is by Grand Rapids on the west side of the state. Mm-hmm. And then I had to <laughs> give it all up. I was excited about the summer, but my requirement took me back to a training post at Fort Benning, Georgia, and I completed my advanced individual training, returned, and then two weeks later was back in college again. And what were you studying in college? It changed. I mean, it was a freshman year. Business is where it ended up, business administration. I did not finish, though. Okay. So you get back from basic training, and and you're doing you're doing drill weekends once a month, mm-hmm. and um, you get back from basic and AIT. And what year do you graduate AIT? AIT would have been, I don't know, ninety eight or ninety seven, roundabout. Because okay. I would have just done a a whole semester in ninety. I said, would you take it? So it would have been 98, 1998, okay. graduate from Fort Benning. So then you're at Grand Valley, and then at what point do they switch you from infantry to artillery? Mm, and are you commuting back to Port Huron? Every yeah, yep, right. I was, which which worked out. You know, it was the recruiter uh, helped help work out the logistical plan. And I thought it would be interesting. We had a really tight uh, class of 97, like 80 people. We still have class reunions past 20 years now and damn near 80% show up to it. So I was at Grand Valley, but on my one week in a month, I come home, I drill, I get mama's cooking and I see my high school buddies. Um, so it worked out. It was a drive, but I mean, the benefit was Get a free place to stay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mom's meatloaf. Get home cooked you know? meatloaf. Heck yeah. That's which is really important in college, obviously. Well, yeah, I missed it, so it worked out. Um, but we switched over to field artillery about my third year in, so maybe it was uh, two thousand, and yeah, roughly two thousand. And they said, "Hey, if you want to remain infantry, you got to take your butt to Saginaw, or you can stay." And we're the king of battle. You were the queen of battle. That's their nicknames for those two specialties, artillery and infantry. I said, I like Port Huron. I like the guys. Most of them were staying. I'd kind of created a family, which is how the military works. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a, a reunion whenever you go to drill. Like, hey, you still dating Susie? Yeah. You know, this and that. Who, um, who was who was somebody like that you met at drill that you're still like you still communicate with? Yeah, you're one of them. Yeah. We deployed to Guantanamo Bay together in 2003. Um, I see faces of the 119th all the time, Sergeant Betts. Um, he's a readiness NCO full-time. He decided to make a full-time gig out of his. Um, hung out with him. It's a guy named Sergeant Mansell he used to give me a lot of shit, um, which is there's, it's not bad hazing, but there's a process, you know. Yeah. And uh, him and, and Bill Symington, who's a, a Sergeant First Class now, I believe, um, Boy, there's a ton. And then everybody I went to, it, the list would be too big. Mm-hmm. Especially after you go through a deployment, now you're family. Yeah. So. so so you guys switched to artillery. Is that like a two-week course? or? Yeah, it was an abbreviated one, and it was at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was three weeks. Maybe it was four weeks. And, and it, it was cool. Like, remember, I, I joined to blow shit up, mm-hmm. and it just raised the bar. Like, field artillery gives you one heck of a rush as you know like there's nothing like it yeah that's a a lot of freaking powder when you think how powerful a shotgun shell is and then you load up about five pounds of it behind a 155 millimeter round like it's cool and then messing with the fuses and stuff like i had no idea that you could get a burst to occur before it hits the ground or in proximity like it it was neat learning to set the fuses and stuff and Mm -hmm. um yeah, it's like I don't know. There's nothing like it. I really had fun with that. Like firing mission, yeah. everyone would yell out, and everyone runs back to their track, and they get in the self-propelled howitzer, and it's on. You're like timed, and you're simulating an experience where someone is in need of you to to deliver rounds. You know, maybe they're getting overrun or something. So speed is is important, and uh, it becomes competitive. Like mm-hmm. which crew is better? You yeah, know? who's going faster? Yeah, yeah. So you what what kind of howitzer were you on when you started artillery? Yeah, 155 millimeter self-propelled howitzer. 
I can't remember. Was it a 109 SP, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then they later on moved to a smaller one that was trailerable. But mine was a, like essentially a tank, if you wanted to call it that. I mean, a track vehicle. Yeah. And uh, you, you switched to 1.9 or 8 at some point. Um, when when you heard the first time you heard clear the path of recoil and you fired, <laughs> what was your what was your feeling then? Holy crap, this could take and cut me in half. <laughs> um, and it, as far as uh, were, what positions did you hold hold as uh, on on a howitzer? I was a ammo section chief for a while, um, which is another vehicle that backs up carrying all the ammunition, powder supplies. Um, and then whenever you fire, you've got what's called dundage. We could just layman's term, call it trash. You know, the, the stuff that it's packaged in. And there's a burn pit for powder that's you're not used. I, I won't get into too much detail in that, but um, I did that. Then um, I was an assistant gunner, and uh, the coolest one was that when I was at my youngest rank was the driver of it. And I was like, this is fulfilling. Like, I joined to do this stuff, and I'm behind a million-dollar piece of equipment. And I had to go over trees and stuff. And if I break it, no one no one cares. Like, there's a maintenance crew Run to fix trees, it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, it was cool. You know, they go through a lot of stuff. You take it through four or five feet of mud. I don't know. That was a, that was a blast. And eventually, you know, you get a little rank, and they want you to have more responsibility. Boo. Yeah. So, so you would go up to grailing. Yeah. And how long would you would you stay in the field for? Uh, we'd stay in the field for two weeks. Um, the field is just like contolment would be where all the buildings and the shopping mart and stuff like that is at. You know, hot meals, sleeping in a bed, open barracks. I also remember. Back in those days, that camp grilling, um, they had just toilets sitting there, and they didn't have partitions. <laughs> I hated that. Yeah, that was a bit, like nobody. T- the recruiter didn't mention that, <laughs> you know. And at like seventeen to twenty years old, like that's not the coolest thing to learn for the first time how to have a bowel movement yeah. in front of you. So I'd set like an alarm clock for like two a.m. and just hold it all day. Be by yourself. So I got a little privacy, um, but. You know, I look back and you can hear hear me laugh. I hear you laughing. Um, these are the stories that you get out of this stuff. At the time, you're like, oh, man. But now it's it's hilarious. And it showed grit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, two weeks in the field, as I just explained, contolment would be <laughs> camp grailing. I can't remember the acreage, but it, it's huge. It's the largest training installation for the National Guard in the United States. And it's in northern Michigan, and, and you're way out there um, at the time. Like cell phone service, and cell phones didn't even really exist. So you're just you're just out there, you know. No showers, sleeping out out of doors, or if it rained, you try and climb into the vehicle and sleep six inches away from six other guys. <laughs> um, and then when you were done, you come back in get your first hot shower and stuff like that. And then back then they used to do uh, at least one day of, I would call it fun or reconstitution. Day. Yeah. Reco- that's the term. Yeah. And we would have uh, softball tournaments against the other batteries. And then there's another field artillery unit, the 182nd. Um, and we compete against them. And the command sergeant majors would buy uh, kegs of beer and, and to play softball and get in this tournament. That, that was a blast. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like it. Um, so, so you're in artillery and, um, at, at one point you, you and I both go to Cuba and what mm-hmm. year did you go to Cuba? 2003 to 2004, uh, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which was, uh, was it, it's affectionately called Gitmo. So if I say that later, Gitmo means Guantanamo Bay, but it was a joint task force, um, essentially a prison for um, combatants picked up in the um, Operation Iraqi Freedom War. So they get these people, soldiers, the enemy, combatants, whatever. They'd scoop them up, interrogate them, and then fly them to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and and place them in the prison um, where we collect intel from them and hold them 
um, so they didn't rejoin the war fight. So essentially, we were prison guards there. And uh, I happened to work on a special mission while I was there. So there's uh, any kind of uh, mission like the one I just described will have high-value or VIP people, combatants, prisoners, whatever you want to call them. Detainees is the term that we used there. So some people will get selected for those, and they just called it a secret squirrel mission. Um, and they had a Delta block. There's a little OPSEC involved there. but I was on a psych hospital. Never mind what it was called. And the psych hospital would not only take care of people that had detainees that had psychological problems, but also detainees that um, caused disturbances or, you know, whatever, um, which had a whole different set of, like, kind of rules of engagement protocol. And so we were getting into scuffles probably three times a week where a lot of the other soldiers I deployed with might not have a problem about once every couple months. So I got a lot of poop and pee and but hands-on or food thrown on me, hands-on, yeah. fighting. Um, you know, it, it was interesting. They get pretty creative. I guess I would, too, if I'm in a prison. They do interesting stuff like smash their glasses and then they come at you with it. So it was like knife fight. It was, it was intense, but I was proud to be on it. And the draw to apply to go to that special mission was they said, hey, we work a two-on-two-off shift, which was preferable to what the main body was doing. And most importantly, we have a free phone in here called a DSN, DSN line, and you can call home for free where everyone else was spending their money on cards. And, uh, and no cell phones back then. No cell phones back then, so you know, I, I could call home as often as I wanted for absolutely free because they had that special line, and it was a privilege. I, that's what hooked me, and then whatever. When I look back on it, um, it was a favorable experience. And I, I don't struggle with any type of guilt, really, too bad. These are pretty pretty bad guys, um, mm-hmm. you know, and we treated them fairly. Matter of fact, Brian, if you remember, in 03, 04, that was about the time that another prison in Iraq called Abu Ghraib um, had some problems with the way in which they were treating their prisoners. Mm-hmm. And so the American, or no, the International Committee of Red Cross went over there and solve that problem, but they were concerned that uh, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba's detention facility might be having the same problem. And as you recall, we didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, so it right. Yeah, we did it right. You know, I treated them um, the way I'd want to be treated. So, so I, I look back on it fondly, and then just some of the time off that we had. Yeah, what did you do on your time off? <clears throat> they. <laughs> I'm laughing because you could almost look at it as a vacation a little bit because of the environment. You're right on this beautiful ocean um, with the best scuba diving, arguably, in the world. The coral reefs were alive and colorful. We're here in, like, the Florida Keys are all gray and half dead. Mm. So the beauty of being able to snorkel and dive, they had uh, PADI certifications for diving so you could buy your gear there and, and free dive. Um, they also rented out boats, so we go fishing as often as possible and bring that stuff back fresh. We have grill outs. Um, what did you catch? Like what, what were some of the- just uh, saltwater fish, like uh, yellowfin tuna, and I think cobia. We caught one of those. You catch some stingrays, plenty of sharks. Uh, we caught an eel one time and ate that. So we had some other people that were deployed there. I think they were Puerto Ricans. And they knew how to prepare that. Um, so they showed us a lot of, like, different cooking techniques for fish. Um, and it, you know, it was, yeah. it was pretty fun. A lot of grill outs. Um, booze was cheap. There were women there. Um, you know, so there was, like, a dance club and stuff. I learned salsa while I was there. They had a paintball gun range. We would do that when we were off duty. It was, I don't know. Did you ever do any of the fun runs? Yeah. Matter of fact, uh... I was asked to, to, they're like, hey, Mass Sergeant Richardson, we got this non-commissioned officer professional development that we're going to do at Fort Custer uh, in Michigan. We want you to come up with, like, the team-building event. The team-building event that I chose, I had learned at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and I thought it was just the craziest thing. Here's what it was. It's it's called a hash run. Mm -hmm. 
hash we substitute for beer. I think colleges were doing it. But you literally start out with like 40 people, 40 soldiers, and you start drinking. Everybody's in their running gear. Then you send out one guy who's fast with a bag of cooking flour, white flour. And they throw this flour on the ground to create a trail for all 40 runners um, to follow. And they would pick the most bizarre. So this rabbit guy, the fast one, would take off and we give him a 15-minute jump. That guy or gal would go into the weirdest spots, like run right through the middle of the PX or the the shopping area yeah. or go through a random building or, or find a Creek or some giant Hill for us all to climb. So it was kind of like a cross country run that high schoolers no. do. You never knew what you were going to get. Never knew. And uh, what was kind of neat is they also had a can of spray paint. So they would draw two breasts, right? There's two circles with like a nipple on it. And it would say X two, like times two. So what that did was as you're running along, there's people that are faster and slower you would have to see that marking on the ground and then stand there and wait until two females caught up with you. And they would have other little things like that, but what that did was keep the group of 40 together because it's team building. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you're not all spread out. Um, and then sometimes they'd send you down a bad trail, they write BT on the ground, so then everyone gets stuck there, and it brings everybody back together, and so you're in a pack. Um, then they would write uh, BN, beer near, and they would be a bag with ice, that like this roving truck would drop off in certain spots <laughs> and you drink beer. They'd be like, all right, time to go again. Uh, and then at the end, if it was your first one, you'd, you'd drink uh, some beer out of someone's shoe as part of initiation. You get a nickname and they do them like every month. What it, was, did you get a nickname? Yeah. I don't remember what it was though. I remember one was like flappy in the sun or something. I remember <laughs> somebody <laughs> told me that. That was, that was pretty neat and so i i recreated that at fort custer as a you know like two years ago and they're like this is crazy i'm like yeah that's so kind much of the fun. Whole point yeah it's yeah blast. the things you learn on deployment yeah <laughs> <laughs> we make fun out of nothing so so you have a good time at in guantanamo bay cuba and what year do you come home i came home in 2004 after i think it was a 10-month deployment and we demobed what was that at Fort Dix? Fort Dix. Yeah. Demobed at Fort Dix, uh, New Jersey, which is where we also mobbed out of in preparation to go and learn. Because we're field artillery people acting as prison guards. You remember how mm-hmm. like that was like, what? What is this? And we're not taking our cannons or anything? No. You know, prison guards. So they taught us how to be prison guards. We were like honorary yeah. military police officers. Yep. Let's take a quick break. Veterans Archives is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we rely on donations from our listeners. If you are enjoying these stories and would like to support our continued efforts, please go to www.veteransarchives.org and select the donate button. Thank you. So, you, so you get home, and what what's your plan when you get home? Where are um, you going? Going back to school or... Well, like, life changes on people. You've got a plan and then stuff happens. And so for me, my stuff that happened was I um, got my girlfriend pregnant and had a baby son. So then college became a secondary thing. Where where was your girlfriend at? Um, Grand Rapids. And her name's Megan. And uh, my son's name is Logan. And uh, so we had this baby... And then I, I pulled out of college, started working at a factory. Then I worked two part-time jobs that were like 70 hours a week, 35 and 35 as a security guard, and my National Guard career part-time. Um, but when I came back from Cuba, I just wanted to get reconnected with my son again. And my parents stood up, and they, they took care of him for the 10 months that I was gone. Um, so I took a little time just to kind of get readjusted even though like i told you about boats and the caribbean ocean and stuff like that there there's still a major adjustment period you have to go through when you come back absolutely and uh so so i went through that um i had them in a guardianship type of role so i earned my way back into being his full-time parent because i had custody of him then from there i wanted to get into a skilled trade but i live in the, the thumb of michigan which isn't there's not a lot of job opportunities 
and I um, ended up learning the skill set to be a, a flooring installer, hardwood, carpet, vinyl. Um, we do big jobs like school uh, vinyl composite tiles. You know, it might take you a month to, to complete the job. That wasn't paying enough, no insurance. And then uh, I looked at a flyer that said, be a recruiter. And it was full time. And I just found out how much money you make um, from my deployment. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is fulfilling in so many ways, financially, insurance. Um, I'm regionalized. I can build equity in my house. I don't move you all. This is the best kept secret in in the active duty military is the National Guard's Active Guard Reserve Program. Absolutely. And, uh, Recruiting seemed to fit because I had also done a, a bunch of sales. I sold cars for a while, and I sold the carpet to customers. They would come into the store and then install it. Um, You've had good experiences in the guard too, so yeah, you, you know can... it was easy. It really changed my life, and and when my life changed, it, it's been uh, I, I would call it my river, Brian. Um, like back in the old old days, mm-hmm. you know, um, the river provided everything. If you wanted to meet your your wife, you go down to the next. Uh, what would you call it? Tribe, neighborhood, village. village. Um, You know, you do all your trading of animal pelts and stuff, the river, you know, and if you needed food, you go fish it. It's like a big deal, right? That's what the National Guard has been for me. I mean, my house, any of my toys, my finances, my retirement. I I had another child because I met a woman when I was on deployment in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, um, and, and kept that relationship for a long time. We had a daughter named Gabriella, um, what year was Gabriella born and what year was Logan born? Uh, Logan was born in 2000, right, the year before 9-11, the 9-11 attack. And Gabby was born in 2006. Yep. So like the guard has, has been, I mean, you even brought me a child. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Took you to Cuba, met a girl, met a girl, and, and a child, had a and beautiful daughter. Yeah. Um, so I can thank the guard for for just about everything that I got going for me. I, re- I really can. It served as a cushion to my life. So if I bobbled something up, I had something a pillow to fall on, mm-hmm. and then it, it took the place of being everything. Um, and then I kicked some ass in recruiting. So where did you, really where'd you start in recruiting? <laughs> I started in Lapeer, Michigan, um, two thousand seven, and. Um, struggled at first. The pressure which came is pretty on. Common for recruiting, which is very, very, yeah, very common. The attrition rate is really, really high. They offer pro pay, and it's one of the most, which they the army gives to occupations that are incredibly difficult. And recruiting is one of them, you know. Um, but I just, I you know, I had the personality for it. I had great experiences. You know, the things I just shared with you about it being my river, et cetera. Um, and after about four months, it was time to get rid of me. And then I dumped six people in. And then the next month I put three in. And the next month I put seven in. And the quota for the year was like 14. So I just put 15 people in in three months' time, and they were about to fire me. I swept the state, became the rookie of the year, and was one of the top five out of 130 recruiters. Um, and when I, when I talk about that, I always get it. I'm concerned about the way people conceptualize or put me into a category, like a used car salesman or whatever. Mm-hmm. The reason I was successful, Brian, was because I cared. And it's, that's hard to teach people. So the folks that I've put in over the years, which is over 100, I talked to every one of them. I've had a dozen of them stay at my house. I've given them loans. I've picked them up when they were in need. Um and I, I'm in contact with them still today. Like I brought them into a brotherhood yeah. the right way. And You're that's recruiting a teammate, not just a yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I had a blast with it and just kept stacking up years where I'd be at the top and just really flourished and I had a ton of fun doing it. So you, you were in Lapeer then? Yeah. Were, okay. Were you in Flint for a little bit too? Lapeer, I progressed really well. You know, I was always in the top, getting awards and accolades and free trips to places, which was cool. I love those. Yeah, they'd be like, hey, if you can put four in in this month, you can go to Hawaii or the Virgin Islands, and they would take you with the other top guys. That stuff was fun. Was there anyone it, that 
I'm sorry. Go ahead. That made me. So they identified me as a leader. They're like, all right, you've got what it takes. Now can you recreate like a team of five below you to be as successful as you? And I ended up in Flint covering like a four, ter- four different recruiter locations with like four or five other recruiters. Was, and was, was there? I would go to Flint every day and then start there and then Saginaw, Pier, Port Huron, local okay. area. Yeah. Was there anybody like that was like crucial to your success, like starting out? Like you'd want to talk about like any leader leaders that impacted you, like when you came into recruiting. I was never really satisfied with the leaders, unfortunately. They kind of threw you a computer and keys to a government vehicle and said, figure it out, and if you don't, we'll get rid of you. But the teammates that I had, yeah, they're huge. And I would, uh, I did a lot of like career mentors. So they call it cradle to grave. You meet somebody, or you put somebody in, or you help them be from one week in a month to them being a recruiter. Like I remember you were coming into a spot where you're like, I, I, I am at funeral honors and, and I'm looking at this recruiting thing. We worked together, did some board prep and stuff like that, right? And then, yeah. you know, we worked together. Then you had new recruiter problems and you'd say, How did you do it? And we would cross talk and stuff for, freaking years right so there's a lot of scenarios like that you're find one the of google them number. find the google number <laughs> find the google you need number. to climb up into the ceiling and move the telephone number that goes to the shared phone to your number <laughs> yeah, I remember that conversation. <laughs> um jermaine barnes was was huge i helped him uh, become a recruiter and man that's one of my tightest connections he ended up being rookie of the year just one hell of a guy and and he had a uh, a bump in the road similar to me and uh was he was from jamaica and uh man it changed his life and and uh i just love watching him become successful he's been big and then we've become competitive with one another um jeremy botus is another one as a teammate and like when stuff got really tough him and i could always converse and we have like a, a negative sense of military humor like if you're in a really crappy position making fun of one another for it and, the, and which will make you laugh and stuff. Um, he's carried me a long ways. Dave Lewis, um, who is he's now he's there, the yeah. command sergeant major. You know, yeah. I work directly for him right now. Um, he was my office partner. Without him, I don't I don't think I'd have made it. Um, so I have mad respect for that man. Um, a lot of loyalty. I suppose I've got one leader that I was really happy with. And that was command sergeant major, just recently retired, Sean Freeze, as well. I'm probably forgetting a couple, but there's some ones that just jumped out to me right away. That was a lot. I remember that. I remember you called me before. So some of my success is from you. So I remember you called me like, hey, man, they can't get enough recruiters to apply to this position. Apply to it. Yeah. And I applied to it. I got the position. And now I'm retired, and now I'm here talking to you. So. Yeah, you like me. So, and I'm right behind you, too. Yeah, you're not too I've far. I've got 10 months. 10 months. Yeah, so, so, yeah, I definitely appreciate it, and I'm, I'm here retired. And, yeah, you know, and you know what's happening room. now? Um, you're the person that I call when I need advice on how yeah. to transition to that retirement thing. Like, you're eight, my ace in the hole, so it's like you're paying it forward back back to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a brotherhood. It team, is. Man. I know. Like my heart is kind of like that's that's the cool stuff about this organization, man. Yeah. So, so going back to recruiting, is there any recruit or any couple recruits that you you think that you've made like a huge impact on that you still like communicate with today? Yeah, um, I know there's probably a lot. It's so. like it's just about all of them. So once I had put them in, um, a lot of the reason that that people join is for money. Um, and I told him how it's my river, explain what the income level is, explained how it's rewarding, the recruiting field, the Active Guard Reserve program. And so my favorites are the people that I took that were working in a factory like me or something like that, just a place that isn't really where they're going to flourish and develop a career and uh, help them become a recruiter and then help them along and then they found success. Um, I, <laughs> I started to call it like, the top 10 for the last like 10 years has all been somehow tied to Lapeer, which is kind of an, it's not a metropolis. So I could like Jermaine Barnes, top, top recruiter forever. Dave Lewis, top recruiter forever. Um, 
for Sergeant Catterfeld, Lapierre, top recruiter forever. Uh, Matt Johnson, top top recruiter. He's not from Lapierre, but it, it helped him get his sub, his position. There, there's like five or six more all, all tied to Lapierre from yeah. working there. It's it's kind of kind of crazy. Yeah, well, you should be proud of that. I mean, having you know, like you said, the team, the brotherhood, the connection, mm-hmm. your river. Yeah. So, <laughs> you're 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 a recruiter, and then after and you're oh, re- leader and recruiter. I can't forget him, Asimacher. and Mitch Asimacher. Those were they're both AGR, right? They are. Yeah, uh, if there's t- two guys. <laughs> they're like, "Welcome to Lapeer. Uh You don't know anybody." I'm like, "Nope." And uh, Nick. The older brother had already joined from, I think, Mark Risley, a legendary recruiter, um, who's actually passed away. I don't know if you knew him or not. We used to call him Hightower. All right. Um, that was his recruiter maybe a year prior to his brother, Mitch Asenmacher, who was like, hey, I want to I wanna serve too. This looks cool. Let's blow some stuff up and have some fun. And uh, so I, I put Mitch in, and in the process, like, got to meet his brother, Nick, because Nick brought him in too right and then i met his mom and then um i'm like a family member like i call his mom mom oh wow uh, yeah of course like these are young guns i'm a little older than them and so their mom um married a man in canada and said i'm selling the house you boys are 20 you know time to go and, and so they stayed with me got their feet under them and stuff and then helped them both uh, come into the active guard reserve program and they're like brothers to me mm-hmm. those two young men um, I've had so much fun with on and off duty for shit, it's 18, 17 years now. It's yeah. still tight as can be. And we were in Lapeer, and so I ended up in Traverse City uh, working in the recruiting battalion. And I called up Nick, and I was like, come on. He's like, for real? Yeah. He was selling seed for Pioneer Corn, and they had just closed down um, in Lapeer, the elevator. So he's like, all right. So he comes up, and then I ended up buying his aunt's house. Um, in spider lake in traverse city so like i got paid back a little bit like hey, he's yeah. like hey this is for sale and this is a scenario and then he comes up so he stays with me and got him started then he became a recruiter in cadillac he made mission and everything and mm-hmm. he's still still around today and then his brother um is agr, too. AGR he's the readiness non-commissioned mm-hmm. officer in lapeer so and he's the armory manager there they all have families now and yeah they, i mean driving hot rod vehicles and harleys and it's it's not all about the material stuff but they they've got a career now and they're yeah. flourishing both of them in it and it's it's neat to have been a part of it yeah along the way. yeah man. big time are. fulfilling yep so so you're in you're a recruiter and you're a leader in recruiting and then what after being a recruiter and a leader in recruiting like where were some of the other positions like in chronological order like where sure. where did you go next this was a team leader in flint running about five guys i came to battalion operations i did that in like 2010 or 11 and that was way out of my element because i i didn't i type still today with two fingers i'm a lot faster than i was but i didn't know anything about computers or anything so what i'd like to do is take a form and print it and then hand fill it in and scan it back (laughs) (laughs) it frustrated the hell out of my boss you were infantry and artillery yeah i mean high school graduate computers weren't that you didn't need to know how to use a computer to turn in your assignments at grand valley state you know handwrite everything you handwrite everything yeah and uh so I got nipped up on it. My administrative skills were lacking, and that even though I'm a top recruiter in my evaluation reports, is administratively lacking, like needs improvement. Um, and I felt mad because I was like, "Listen, leader, I've put you in the top position, being like a number one recruiter, and you benefited from it." And then you write this stuff in there. Check this out. I'm leaving your team. And I'm going to come to operations, jump completely out of my comfort zone. And I'm going to figure out this computer stuff and administrative crap. And I sucked at it. But by the time I was done, nobody could say that about me. I did three years at uh, Joint Force Headquarters in Lansing, commuting from Lapeer an hour and a half each way, which eventually got old. And then from there, I got back out into the field um, where I'm tied to producting, production and, and finding enlistments. And they opened up a master trainer position 
And I took that in Ypsilanti somewhere around 2013, roundabout, off a little bit. Um, so I go around the whole state and train new recruiters and struggling recruiters because mm-hmm. I was good at what I did. And uh, eventually I didn't see that being a career development thing. Like it was good the year I did it. But uh, one of my friends, command sergeant at the time, first sergeant, Sean Freeze, got promoted. And he said, hey, we're going to take the bad news bears, which means to take a, like, it's a movie. They take a team that is absolutely horrible at baseball, and they basically drive them and develop the team from being the worst ever to, like, going to the World Series. Mm -hmm. And so they gave him that challenge. And he started calling up pals that he knew were rock stars kind of thing. And I was his first call. Hey, Lonnie boy, you know, bring your ass up to Traverse City. Uh, I'll make you a platoon sergeant. You'll be in charge of 12 guys. It's horrible, but there's only room for improvement. And uh, he's really competitive. He knows I am as well. And he called up a couple other pals. And we went up there and we kicked everyone's butt. It's called Charlie Company, which never existed before. And it ranged uh, from central Michigan. You could draw a line from Bay City over to Big Rapids. And then everything north of that, all the way to the compass, the entire upper peninsula. It's a nightmare. It's like managing a team, if you lived in Lansing, that worked out of St. Louis, Missouri. Pretty hard for accountability. Mm-hmm. A lot of time on the road. Hotels. But we won company of the year. Multiple times. And so he got promoted. And then I got promoted and backfilled him. Then I ran Charlie Company as a first sergeant. He moved up to command sergeant major. I did that for four years, 2022 minus four, 2018 to like 2022, and just dominated as a company. So I was really good as a new recruiter, really good as a recruiter, really good as a trainer, kind of sucked at operations. And then... um, Everybody has a weak spot. Yeah. That's all right. And then, and then uh, um, took over as a platoon sergeant, and I was the number one platoon. Not I. The team does everything, you know. But our team um, was the winner two years in a row, and then became the first sergeant of the company, which then was uh, thirty about thirty people, encompassing that large range. And then mm-hmm. we, we just d- dominated. It was a blast because I'm competitive and. In recruiting, in the Army, it's, it's, I mean, they try to make competition out of everything, but it's real clear in recruiting. Like, you know if you're top or not top. Mm-hmm. And I really like that about my uh, career. I remember that you you telling me, like, you couldn't solicit in Traverse City. Yeah, no solicitation. And like you, like, but then I remember uh, one of your recruiters there. Yeah was very successful and from what I understand is still successful. So, so tell me about a little bit about the, the headaches and obstacles in Traverse city. And some of it's a big move. I'd move four hours away. Um, my son at some point was like, Hey, on 13, 14, I want to live with my mom. I want to live in the city. I've always lived in the country. I want to live in the-. And, and he did. So he took off and it was his mom's turn. And, um, um, she spent her time, having them more often, and then I became the one-week-in-a-month guy. Um, and I seized that opportunity. And my daughter lives with her mom, so, you know, I see her half the year, every break, all summer. You know, I've been an active father. But she didn't live with me, so I'm like, so my son just left to go live with his mom. Gabby's in Rochester near Detroit. By myself, single again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get the call to ask me to come to Traverse City. And I was like, this is the crown jewel of the state. That's where all the tourism's at. It's beautiful. So, so I went up there with no house, no friends, didn't know anybody, four hours away. And I was like, I'm going to live on my boat. It's a cabin cruiser. And the boat broke down. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'm going to get an apartment. Except that was when... The colleges were, were all coming back in a session, so every rental is taken by a college kid. I'm like, shit. So I had to live in my government van. Oh, I stayed no. in my government van for 45 days, and I've got funny stories galore out of that. There's a lot of weird stuff that happens at 3.30 in the morning. Like, there's Especially people walking the around, you know. There's bears up there. Yeah, there's... 
there's bears up there. But I was, I, mean, I stayed in the urban environment. I would go hide out in the woods, but I ended up figuring out that hotels are the best spot to stay. Mm-hmm. They don't bother you at night. It's quiet. You're safe. It's good. Other spots, not so much. There's drug dealing going on. There's a psych people that struggle with psychological problems milling around. You know, get kind of spooky, and it's hard to sleep when it's hailing on a on a government like. Dodge Caravan. Yeah. <laughs> but I am tenacious. I like the adventure of it all. I wanted to switch stuff up. I wanted to change. I wanted a more active lifestyle, which I believe happens in northern Michigan, more just more up to snowmobiling, mm-hmm. hiking, Outdoors, state land, fishing. Yeah, it's all kind of better. It's a four season place. But it was tough as hell to make that move and get up there. I just got a little sidetracked, but that's my little Traverse City gem of a story is how hard it was to to make that move and now you're you're currently living there other than yeah so like you know uh i chased down uh the sergeant major position which is the top that you can go i made it to the sergeant major academy started out that they said come on down to lansing you can work as the operations nco again um which is not my strong suit and uh you know down in lansing i found an apartment so i still have my house up in traverse but I'm down here during the week, you know, found a, a room to rent from another soldier. And uh, eventually you, you get to a certain spot and you just know when it's time to retire. So it was. I ran the dollars and cents and I pulled out of the Sergeant Major Academy, which everyone was worried about. I might regret, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, I'm not trying to chase a rank. That doesn't matter. It's about mm-hmm. the people that I work with and those below me. Um, so I made the decision to drop my retirement letter. So only 10 months and we're out of here. So how long ago did but you I made it? it to the top is what I'm saying. So yeah. I wanted to make it to the top. I was number one on the promotion list. I got selected for the academy. There's only like five people a year that go to it for the whole state. The timing was right. But I made it. So like I ran it to the top. E1, nobody, little Lon Richardson from a poor country town and a hearty upbringing um, with a family that was full of love. Um all the all the way to the top rank as a non-commissioned officer and then i withdrew myself nobody said like you you're not gonna do it it was all teed up that's why i'm here in lansing was to set that up so i'm gonna finish out my 10 months um so 10 months left yeah when did you drop your letter (sighs) four or five months ago so it's october was there anything specific that you were just like, man, I'm just ready? Or? Yeah, there's stuff that sucks about the military just as much as there's good. And if you start to stop feeling my reason to join mm-hmm. was uh, was service and contribution. And I really enjoyed growing people's lives and, and being a mentor to them um, for all the people I enlisted and the other brothers in arms and stuff that I would meet. And that started to kind of kind of go away. I started noticing that a lot of our government agencies became a, a very political and they're supposed to it's kind of not this has been a kind of a weird time i'm just like you know what the passion has kind of changed and that that's you just know when you're ready to go mm-hmm. i've i've fulfilled every goal that i've wanted to achieve and i might end up in another capacity like a veteran service officer i hope so i think you'd be good at it and still, you know, helping out troops and stuff like that as I'm creative, you know. So if they're missing a benefit and there's a little loophole, I'm pretty good at identifying them and making that crap happen. So if there is anyone listening to this conversation, mm-hmm. what would you like them to take away from it? My decision to join the military um, was based off a of service and contribution to protect other people, um, to be a part of the freedoms that, that we enjoy. And uh, um, I also want, you know, it, begin, it begins to change as you go along, like your motivations and stuff. So the, the front... The front section when I joined was to do that, and I have found that fulfillment, especially when our nation came under attack on 9-11. The guard had been kind of underused. Nothing was going on. And when that that plane crashed into the building and I saw it on TV at work installing floor covering, all my friends looked at me like, holy crap, you're in the military. And it wasn't three hours later. You got the call. I got the call. And they're like, yeah, we need you now. Report tomorrow. 
And uh, I was like, wow, it's on. And man, was I fired up about the events that had happened. That brought so much fulfillment to contribute. Um, I worked on the Blue Water Bridge to Canada from Port Huron to Sarnia's border crossing. It's called the Blue Water Bridge. And I worked with U.S. Customs, and we caught a lot of suspected terrorists coming across, protected that because we were under attack. A lot of fulfillment there. A lot of fulfillment from uh, the Guantanamo Bay mission as a detainee um, prison guard. Um, so as part of Operation Enduring Freedom, um, while our brothers in arms are out there stopping these horrible people from the shit they were doing to their own their own kind um, and bringing it to, to our country. I fulfilled that. Um, so, so in the name of service, and then, you know, you're rewarded for that as a recruiter as well because you're, you're creating, if you don't have anything, if you don't have a team, there's only one person in the National Guard. It's ineffective. So I was a part of the force to bring people in, and then I, I, I mentored them, you know, cradled to grave from the time I put them in until they either got out or whatever, 27 years worth of it, and making those connections. So I, I fulfilled that. I also knew that I didn't want my sister, my brother, or my mom to be raped by somebody some terrorist organization or something i didn't want that i figured you know what i'm gonna do it and then there's a lot of people that then don't have to um that's a sense of pride so when it comes time to vote or i look at the how the country's doing i'm a part of it. i'm in the history books lon richardson served he did it honorably did it well and gave it his all um if you're gonna do something you're going to be there, be there. It may be a shitty job, but, man, I learned how to take a crappy situation and just make the absolute best of it. That carries into, like, my personal life. So I've done events or work crappy jobs, but if you're there, just, like, just absolutely just be there and just dominate it and make it fun. Um, that's been a big takeaway that I wouldn't have gotten, I don't think, if I was in the military. Um, I wanted to blow shit up. That's why I, it was a big reason I joined. I had the ability to, to do that. Um, blew a lot of shit up, fired automatic. All the stuff that a young man who's got a sense of adventure wants to do. Um, driving a, you know, essentially a tank and firing automatic weapons, throwing hand grenades. Like that stuff was, was awesome. So much fun. Um, the people that I met are kind are, they're all vetted when you're a soldier. So you don't have anybody that's addicted to drugs. You, you know, you don't have any criminal problems. They're vetted. So you've got a good social group. And man, like, these guys end up as attorneys, they end up as veteran service officers, they end up as best friends. If I need to rent a place, I mean, I've got a true brotherhood, and all my friends are, like, they're badasses. They're all top-notch folks, you know. Um, that's been very rewarding. So the decision for someone else to join, you know, it's been my river, brought me everything that I've uh, had. It changed the trajectory, trajectory of my life. And I think that other people, if they if they kept a more open mind about, about service, um, you know, they could benefit from the things that I just described to you. I also enjoyed the travel. So it came from a country town. Um, it was not a vi very diverse town. So, like, just about everyone is is uh, a Caucasian Christian with a lower income. And when you get into the military, they mix you up with people from California, people with different religious backgrounds, um, people from different cultures. Um, and you get people like you meet from Puerto Rico and stuff. Really opened my mind up um, and I gained an interest in learning more about different different people. Um, that's been a lot of fun. It's been really cool, especially when you, you mix together and they're like, what are you, you know, what are you doing? Why are you preparing your fish that way? Watch this. And you're like, oh man, that's awesome. Or just, I don't know. Cultural diversity and inclusion. I mean, the military is all about that stuff. And so I might just be a, a farmer from a small town. Now I'm comfortable in any setting and it prepared me for life after the military to be successful where I'm at. I'd say that's it in a nutshell. I probably forget a few things, but it's the highlight reel, Brian. Thank you for listening to another episode of Veterans Archives, the podcast that brings you the story of the men and women who have created and lived our military history. 
If you or someone you know served in the military and would like to share your story with Veterans Archives, please go to www.veteransarchives.org, select the Apply Now button, and fill out our application, and someone will get right back with you. Veterans Archives is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we rely on the donations of our listeners. If you are enjoying these stories and you support our efforts, please go to www.veteransarchives.org and select the Donate button. Any donation is certainly appreciated. Look for Veterans Archives on your favorite social media. We are on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for Veterans Archives. Like, follow, and share our page. We'd certainly appreciate it. If you or someone you know is a veteran and you are struggling with mental health issues, please dial 988 and select option one for the Veterans Crisis Hotline. Please be sure to tune in next time for the next episode of Veterans Archives.